Welcome to Old Flames. I'm your host, retired firefighter and arson investigator turned professor and award-winning author, Lee Hutch. I am coming at you with season two of Old Flames, and rest assured, I'm still finding tales of daring do from the storied past of the fire service, no matter where they may be, around the world, across the country, across the street, up my driveway, or up yours. It's been a while and a lot has happened. Uh, finished up the spring semester and then taught a couple of classes during the summer one semester. Uh, on the writing front, my second novel, Molly's Song, which is the first in a three book series, will be out on uh, July 29th. And it's available for pre-order now though, and I'll post a link in the show notes. Um, it doesn't suck. And I also just finished it reviewing the audiobook version a couple of days ago. So if you like audiobooks then stay tuned for that too i'm booked for another surgery on september the 14th though that's subject to change based on the insurance company and the rona you know if that causes them to cancel have to cancel surgeries again uh, elizabeth and i also adopted two little uh, gray kittens that i have named oxenia and olga uh, because they're russian blues they're a bit <clears throat> they're a bit much actually um, i've forgotten how exhausting it can be having kittens around but <clears throat> thankfully, Anastasia is helping take care of them. I, I told her that they were her kittens, and so she's been watching out for them with minimal hissing and only an occasional bop on the head. Uh, Anastasia is my cat, in case you didn't catch that in a previous episode. Now, before we get around to the subject of today's story, I uh, just want to take a minute to remind you that this podcast is rated TVMA and contains descriptions of fire-related disasters, salty language, inappropriate humor, and the uh, occasional Uranus joke. So do not listen to this podcast with children in a room. So consider yourself warned on that front. There have been a few podcasts that have covered the Great Chicago Fire. There are actually not as many as you might think. Um, and hopefully others will cover it in the future. I'm looking at you, all bad things. But since this is such a big story, and there's literally thousands of eyewitness accounts from people who lived through and survived the fire, uh, that there's plenty of room for podcasts to, other podcasts to cover and come at it from different angles. Since... Of course, I'm a retired fireman. Uh, my focus in this podcast is specifically going to be on the Chicago Fire Department's response to the fire, the way they fought the fire or tried to fight the fire, and what the eventual result is. And so because of that, a lot of those um, survivor firsthand accounts are kind of left out, will be kind of left out of, of my coverage of it, unless those accounts come from or are about the fire department. That's just my way of, of approaching looking at it. So I just wanted to be upfront about that going into it, that if you're looking for lots of juicy tidbits from people running through the streets to escape the flames, you're really not going to get a lot of that. Uh, and my episode, again, is going to be more based on the, the fire department. Late one night while we were all in bed Mrs. O'Leary left a lantern in the shed And when the cow kicked it over she winked her eye and said It'll be a hot time in the old town tonight now We sang that little ditty in a school program when I was in kindergarten And uh, 
the those lyrics aren't the original lyrics of that song. There is a song called A Hot Time in the Old Town Tonight that was written in the 19th century. Actually, a very, very popular song from the 19th century all the way up to World War I. But the Mrs. O'Leary lyrics were actually a parody to it that also did originate in the 19th century. Um, as a kid learning to sing that, you know, in uh, kindergarten, I didn't, I didn't really even know what it was about. Uh, I didn't equate it with the Great Chicago Fire. And then, of course, being older and reading more about it and stuff you know it's wrong anyway because mrs o'leary's cow didn't start the fire that's a spoiler alert so sorry i, I probably should have said that before i told you it wasn't a cow but i think that's pretty much common knowledge now that it wasn't in fact mrs o'leary's cow so what comes to mind when i say the word chicago is it deep dish pizza is it the cubs or the white Sox? my wife is an obsessed Cubs fan, by the way. Is it Wrigley Field or the old Kaminsky Park? If you're like me and watched a lot of Saturday Night Live back in the 90s, the first thing you might think of when you hear the word Chicago is the Bears. The fact that you would think of anything at all is a testament to the fact that even today, in 2021, Chicago is a very important, very major American city. And it also was an important and major American city back in 1871. So that much hasn't changed. Um, this shows you that uh, some cities can retain their, their importance for over 100 years, and Chicago certainly has. But it didn't start out that way. You know, in 1833, Chicago was a little hamlet, basically, a little prairie village with about 200 inhabitants. Uh, not quite 40 years later, you know, in 1871, the city had exploded in population from 200 inhabitants to 330,000 inhabitants. And like all big cities, uh, Chicago faced its share of growing pains as it grew from that little prairie village to a major American metropolis. Now, time uh, and space, you know, prevent me from going into a ton of detail about the history of the city, though I will give you some basic information here that will aid us as we move forward with the story. What really put the city on the map was a combination of geography, railroads, and livestock. By 1871, the city had more railroad lines leading to it and from it than any other city in the world. This is also the time of the great cattle drives coming out of Texas. And much of the cattle being driven to the railheads in Abilene and Dodge City ended up being put on trains bound for Chicago's Union Stockyards, which had opened on Christmas Day of 1865. Uh, the stockyards covered a whopping 350 acres, and though it did cause much of the city to smell pretty damn bad, along with the slaughterhouses, it was the smell of progress, you know, kind of like the refineries where I live. Um, and the slaughterhouse industry, of course, was significant in Chicago. It would become famous or infamous when Upton Sinclair wrote The Jungle in 1906, um, now, what's interesting to me, you know, and I'm from the great state of Louisiana. I've lived behind enemy lines here in Texas for a few years. But um, what uh, sounded interesting to me is that people, you know, when you say Texas, people associate that with cowboys. The The cattle drive era in Texas history only lasted from 1876 or, 18, sorry, 1866 to about 1875. Not quite even 10 full years. And yet still, that's what people associate with you know, it's Texas, not just other people in the United States, but all over the world. When you say Texas, people think cowboys. 
um, which is funny because my whole time living here, I don't think I've ever met a cowboy. What we actually have here are um, urban cowboys. You know, these people that they move down here from up north. Uh, we don't know a horse's head from a horse's ass. But as soon as they move here, they pay extra money for a four-wheel drive pickup truck that they only drive on the freeway going back and forth to the office job. You know, and yet they got their little cowboy hats and all that stuff. You know, I guess that's why Conway Twitty said don't call him a cowboy unless you've seen him ride. Um, but that's, that's the kind of cowboys we have here now. Um, but again, that is something that's associated with the state. And those same cows that make people think cowboys when they think of Texas help make Chicago a major city as well. <clears throat> Speaking of railroads, in 1871, it was possible to travel from New York City to Chicago by train in 30 hours without even having to change trains. And with the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad in 1869, you could travel from New York City to San Francisco in 100 hours. Now, of course, today where we can jump on a jet and be anywhere in the world in 24 hours, it's... We look at that and like, it's a long time to be sitting on a train. But the alternative would be six months on a wagon to go from the Atlantic to the Pacific. So 100, 100 hours, I'll take the 100 hours. That's part of the reason why this was kind of an exciting era to live in with the advent of all sorts of new technologies that was seemingly happening every day. Coupled with railroads, stockyards, much of the population explosion in Chicago came from two massive waves of immigrants which landed almost right on top of one another um, from the late 1840s through the 1850s. The first, of course, is the Irish, uh, with the United States taking in a million Irish immigrants um, during a 10-year period at a point when the U.S. only had a population of 15 or so million. That's pretty significant. Uh, these were followed, of course, quickly by immigrants from the German states uh, starting in 1848. Um, there was no unified country of Germany at the time. It consisted of various independent German-speaking states, of which uh, Prussia was the largest and most powerful. We wouldn't see a unified Germany until, incidentally, 1871, the year of the fire in Chicago. And Chicago's population would increase 11-fold between 1850 and 1870. So by 1871, about half of the city's 330,000 people were foreign-born. Uh, Germans made up the largest chunk with 20%. Of the population, uh, followed by the Irish at 13%. The half that were foreign-born also doesn't take into account first-generation Americans, children born here to immigrant parents. They make up a, a significant percentage of the non-foreign-born chunk. All told, Protestant Americans of British heritage who were born in the United States only made up about 20% of the city, but they controlled all of its wealth. And, of course, they looked with great disdain at recent immigrants, particularly the Catholic Irish. Um, the main reason that you found more Germans than Irish in Chicago during this time period is that the German immigrants um, coming over because of the 1848 revolution, the failed 1848 revolutions, uh, were middle class um, when they got here. Like, they were already middle class when they left Germany. They're educated people, doctors, lawyers, um, wealthy shopkeepers, you know, etc., so when they landed on the East Coast, they had a little bit of coin in their pocket, and they were able to make their way into the interior of the country, which is why you see so many people still of German heritage that come from states like Ohio, Indiana, Illinois. You also have a, had a pocket of German immigrants uh, come through Galveston and settle in Central Texas during this time period as well, and there's the hill country part of Texas still has a definite uh, German um, 
stamp on it, if you will. This You can contrast that with the Irish who, when they show up um, during the years of the Great Hunger, I mean, they were dirt po, and they tended to congregate in coastal cities like New York, Boston, New Orleans. Uh, those are the three cities that had the largest Irish populations by 1860. But, and here's the but, the Irish had actually arrived in Chicago before the Germans. So even though the Irish were a smaller percentage of the population than the Germans, they wielded disproportionate political power in the city at the local level. And thus they were overrepresented in the city's police and fire departments. Um, meaning overrepresented being a much larger percentage of Chicago's police officers and firefighters were of Irish descent compared to the percentage of the population as a whole that was Irish in Chicago. So in 1867, the city opened a new waterworks to pump water through the city, but it was quickly overcome by increased demand. Uh, and it was known by 1871 that a second pumping station was badly needed, uh, but none was built prior to the fire. The city had about 500 miles worth of streets, but only 70 miles of them were paved. Most of the city was built out of wood, even the sidewalks were wooden, and it was mostly pine wood, which tends to burn very fast, meaning when it burns, it burns fast. Even the brick construction, you know, kind of in a business district, had wooden interiors. It was, it was a free-floating masonry walls over wood frame construction. Most houses during this era, of course, had kerosene for uh, lamps and coal for the stoves. You had paint and varnish everywhere. There were 17 wooden grain elevators in Chicago as well, kind of towering over the, the neighborhoods. I mean, the city is an absolute tinderbox by 1871. It's also a city of great contrasts. You know, while the lakefront area had these very ornate mansions among some of the finest anywhere in the world at that time, to the southwest you had a sprawling slum of ramshackle wooden cottages built right up against one another, stretching as far as the eye can see, you know, overcrowded with many recent immigrants into the city. Um, if you were a wealthy Chicagoan, you could actually live your whole life going about your own daily business and everything else, never actually laying your own eyes on the abject poverty that existed in most of the city. Um, and in fact, you know, the newspapers in Chicago uh, frequently opined about these evil immigrants, particularly the Catholic Irish immigrants coming in with, and, you know, they're coming over here to, to steal jobs and um, they're all criminals, they're drunkards, they're lazy. All the same things you hear people say about immigrants today. They said about the Irish back then. Um, this is in a time period in which we were still being, uh, we, I'm saying we because I am Irish, we were being depicted in the newspapers as being monkeys, like we were somehow simian in nature. You know, uh, we were good enough to police your streets and fight your fires, but not good enough to marry your daughter. You know, and there are still some people out there today that think that, unfortunately. Um, you know, my, it, being from an area where it don't matter if you're black, white, French, Irish, German, we're like, we're all Catholic moving to Texas where the Bible thumpers run everything that was really a big eye-opener for me because I had never like you'd always heard that there were people like primarily evangelical Christians that hate Catholics but you never but everybody you knew was Catholic so you never really experienced that well boy I have now um uh, to the extent that I mean I've even even at a college where you know the other faculty brag about how tolerant and diverse they are uh, which to me if you have to brag about it you're not really it but anyway 
Um, I mean, I've had to sit there and listen to them say the kind of stuff about Catholics that if you said about a gender or racial group, whatever, you get fired. But because it's about Catholics, I, I can't complain. I mean, I did once. I was told I just needed to get a thicker skin. So, um, so yeah, that viewpoint's still out there. Uh, maybe not as prevalent as it once was, and it's probably more prevalent in parts of the Deep South where you have more evangelical types. Um, but it's still out there. And don't you're kidding yourself if you think it's not. Like pretty much every major American city during this time period, Chicago started out with a with volunteer fire companies. Uh, these were little auto- autonomous entities that elected their own foreman or their own captain. They didn't answer to anybody. They so they determined who their own membership was. And they operated with little regulation at first. Um, Over time, you'd see cities starting to adopt a system by which, yes, you would have all these volunteer fire companies, but there would be some oversight. You would have a chief in charge of the whole department, you know, that kind of thing. It was part of that slow process of converting urban volunteer fire companies into urban paid fire departments. Um, They were, uh, you know, some of these companies were good, others were not. Um, but they're busy enough since, you know, fires were, uh, more common in the 19th century than they are now. Now the big difference between being a firefighter then and, and a fireman now is that the vast majority of what we do now is not actually put out fires. Um, 80% of our calls is on average nationwide. 80% of our calls are EMS related. And then you add in all the other stuff we have to go to uh, car accidents, rescues, automatic fire alarms, you know, that type of thing. Fires make up a pretty small percentage. Um, back then, pretty much all they did was fires, and they were catching fires every day, uh, which, again, is a little unusual today, anyway. Um, you'd have several factors kind of combined to force large cities to phase out the volunteer fire companies and adopt paid fire protection. Uh, first and foremost was the uh, use of steam-powered fire engines. These were big, heavy pieces of apparatus that you couldn't pull by hand, like the hand pump engines, and so you had to introduce the use of horsepower. Uh, well, introducing the use of horsepower meant that you had to have somewhere to keep the horses, people to tend the horses, to train the horses, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Chicago would purchase their first steam engine, incidentally, in 1858, and that was the year that they started the conversion to a paid fire department. Um, you also have the uh, Civil War. Um, the Civil War was a big issue in pushing cities to adopt fa- paid fire protection, mainly because the same types of people that were normally in these volunteer fire companies these are young men that are also going to be going off to serve in the army. So uh, cities that had volunteer fire companies saw their fire coverage decimated when the war came along. Just as an example, um, New York City still had volunteer fire companies throughout the Civil War. They would not adopt a paid department until June of 1865. And part of the reason for doing that was their manpower losses during the Civil War. When the Confederates fired on Fort Sumter, the New York City Fire Department had 4,000 members. Now, they were made up among all these different volunteer fire companies with a chief over the whole department. But they have 4,000 members. When the war ended, they had 2,000. And they lost half their membership to the war. Um, so, again, it's one of those things that, well, if we, had, if we had paid fire protection, we could actually have less, we need less manpower. So, that's why New York City in June of 1865 would adopt a paid fire department. Um, the biggest catalyst for Chicago to start the process themselves happened on, a, on a October 19th of 1857. You have a fire start which killed 23 people, including three firefighters. Um, the city was not happy with the response of the volunteer fire companies, so they decided, okay, we're going to start this conversion process. 
uh, it would start the following year. So the fire was in 1857. It would start the following year in 1858. And unlike cities like New York, where, you know, today we have a pay, a volunteer fire companies and tomorrow we have a paid department, Chicago phased it in over several years. And actually they wouldn't have a completely paid department until the end of the civil war. Um, they'd, you know, add equipment, add a paid engine, ditch a volunteer engine, you know, that kind of thing. Um, it probably would have happened sooner had it not actually been for the war, you know, in all honesty. But by the time of the great Chicago fire, the city had one of the finest fire departments in the world. There were 172 telegraph fire alarm boxes to alert the department of fires, albeit there was a catch with these. Now, if you go back and listen to one of my earlier episodes, I explain how these telegraph boxes work. The ones in Chicago worked the same way, but, and here's the but, they were locked. Um, certain business owners and citizens were entrusted with keys. So if you were not one of those people and you saw a fire, you had to first find the person with the key to the box, then open the box, and then pull the lever. That kind of slowed things down. Um, but the city had overlapping alarm coverage. So in the cupola atop the courthouse, you have a guy standing watch um, all night long. If he observes a fire, he will estimate the nearest fire alarm box, and then he will call down on a speaking tube to a telegraph operator, one of the lower floors. Oh, sorry, I know it's kind of a rough transition here, but I was, uh, my wife got home and I uh, had forgotten to do something I promised I was going to do, so she was in there making angry German noises. Uh, anyway, um, so the observer on the bell tower, you know, it's his job to, to watch for a fire at night, um, or the cupola of the courthouse, I'm sorry. And then you know, calls down on a speaking tube, uh, estimating the box number. Then the telegraph operator will transmit the box signal uh, like he would if it was a pulled fire alarm box to the nearest fire companies. But the uh, watchman will also ring the courthouse bell and he'll ring the box number on the bell. So like you say, it's box 341. He'll ring it three times, four times, one time. And then he'll ring a signal to say basically how serious a fire it is, um, roughly corresponding to alarms. So, you know, one ring would be a one alarm fire, which is just a fire small, small enough to be handled by companies in the immediate vicinity. Two would bring in additional resources and three for them would basically be the, the whole department. There was a third, uh, reporting feature as well. Uh, Chicago fire stations at this time were usually two or three story buildings. Um, and at night the firemen would take turns standing watch on the roof. Um, again, also watching for fire in their immediate vicinity. And if they noticed one, they would, um, <clears throat> self initiate a response. Um, before they left the station, the company officer would transmit a signal to the fire alarm office, or the fire alarm uh, telegraph operator in the courthouse, um, telling them the box number, and then it would be rerouted back to any other additional stations that needed to be uh, needed to respond. And um, in Chicago, they would refer they referred to that process as um, uh, being stilled out to a fire because you're you're self initiating, so the bells don't ring in your station. The bells are still. Which is why even today, uh, the Chicago Fire Department uses the term 
box alarm and still alarm differently than most of the rest of the country does. Um, but that's neither here nor there. So in, uh, 1870, the fire department responded to about 700 fires, which caused two and a half million dollars in damage. Uh, that's about $55 million in, in today money. Now of significance is that this was, this represented a, a $1.5 million increase over the previous year. So the previous year, 1869 fires damaged about a million dollars worth of property. 1870 was a two and a half million. Uh, the chief of the department, Robert Williams, he begged the city, and he was actually a, a Canadian immigrant uh, to Chicago, but had come up through the ranks in the, of the volunteer fire companies before becoming a paid fireman and then becoming chief. Um, he, uh, chief Williams had begged the department for uh, more hydrants, for a new pump station because they had water pressure issues, uh, a fireboat, and most importantly, more firemen because uh, they were chronically understaffed. Um, and the, uh, the fire and police commission, which was the board that oversaw the, the fire and police departments, they agree with him. Um, they say, yeah, I mean, they, they need these, we need these changes, but the city politicians, city councilman, and mayor, uh, disagreed. <clears throat> they did not think those things were necessary. And so those requests went unanswered, unfulfilled. In their yearly report for 1870, the Fire and Police Commission wrote, and this is a quote, private interests compel men to disregard the rights of the public. Uh, that kind of sums up some people's response during the current pandemic as well. So it shows that people haven't really changed all that much in you know, 140 years. Uh, but ultimately, fire protection costs money. And you're going to get the fire department you want to pay for. Uh, the city did not want to anger home and business owners by raising taxes in order to increase fire protection. That ultimately, that's what it all boiled down to. So instead, <clears throat> their homes and businesses burned down in a disastrous conflagration that, that could have been mitigated or perhaps even prevented had uh, these uh, measures been taken ahead of time. And that's ultimately uh, still a problem that we deal with uh, today. Um, especially your, your big cities, you know, where you have competing resources within the city and there's a limited amount of money. It's like, who gets the money? And I'll tell you this, it's rarely the fire department. Um, because <clears throat> it, 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 well, there's other, all sorts of factors to it. And I don't really want to get into it here, but I'll just say this, that there is a, a false perception that everybody loves the fire department. Um, I keep seeing people post this fucking bullshit meme on social media all the time. And it fucking pisses me off every time I see it. It says, you know, nobody ever wrote a song called fuck the fire department. I'll tell you what, why don't you go to work at a busy urban fire station where you get shot at, you get bricks thrown at you, you get physically assaulted on scenes and then come tell me, that everybody loves the fire department. Yeah, you love the fire department when they when they pull your dog out of your burning house, but when it comes time to pay for us to have a, a cost of living raise when we hadn't had one in 10 fucking years, you're nowhere to be found then. Why? Because it's gonna cost you more in taxes. When we're dropping like flies of cancer 
you're electing politicians that won't consider our occupational cancer for workers' comp coverage. So we're stuck bankrupting ourselves after we spend a, a, a year or we spend a career saving your asses. Then we die in bankruptcy because of cancer that we acquired on the job because you elect politicians that won't consider that workers' comp. And why? Because it costs too much money. <clears throat> you know, so, yeah. Yeah, come tell me that everybody loves the fire department. It was no different today than it was in 1871. Now, in October of 1871, which was the, the month of the fire, the department had a strength of 190 firefighters. Uh, that's it, 190 firemen for a city of 330,000. Divided into uh, <clears throat> 17 engine companies, and these were steam, you know, horse-drawn steam engine companies, four hook and ladder companies, six hose companies, and all, of course, are horse-drawn. Uh, their equipment was actually some of the, the finest in the country. Um, 11 of their 17 uh, steam engines were less than six years old, and four of them were uh, less than two years old, so basically brand new. Uh, this was a an era in which uh, firemen worked what was called a continuous tour. What this, it's kind of hard to explain, but what it essentially means is that you were on duty seven days a week, 24 hours a day. Uh, you basically lived at the fire station full time. Now, you got one hour off every day on a you know, kind of rotating schedule. Um, where you could go home for meals. So like if you were married, had kids, you know, you got one hour off a day that you could go home. And you also got uh, an afternoon, usually four hours off uh, once every seven days. So again, if you were married with kids, you could go home and have your, your conjugal visit. Um, if you were uh, single, you'd go courting, you know, whatever. But you get your four hours off. Um, that would be the prevailing schedule um, into the early part of the 1900s. Um, and in some cases, even longer than that, uh, then you slowly start seeing things, uh, things change, you know, things evolve a little bit. Um, the standard shift schedule in the United States now, the one that's kind of the norm is for a three platoon system where it's a, it's a one, two or a 24, 48. So it's 24 hours on 48 hours off. Um, <clears throat> that's kind of the norm. Um, but there are exceptions and there are some big city departments that, uh, or different than that. Um, you have also have your West coast schedules. You have a California schedule where it's, uh, it's basically 24 on 24 off. Um, so one on one off for five days. And then at the end of that period, you get four days off. You have a California King schedule where it's one on one off for seven days. And then you get six days off, you know, um, Houston works 24 on 24 off 24 on five days off. Uh, and on the East coast, <clears throat> you still have some departments that, uh, work day and night tours. So you work, uh, it's like what the FDNY, for example, they work, uh, you work two day shifts, two 10 hour days, followed by two 14 hour nights, followed by four days off. That's a more common schedule in European fire departments. So for example, the London fire brigade works, basically works that schedule, the same one that FDNY works. So it's kind of an older type of schedule, but, um, <clears throat> some of your, other departments have experimented with different, uh, even you know, more different than that schedules. Like the city that I live in, um, we have, or, you know, our fire department works, they work uh, to 2-4 uh, 
So it's 48 hours on, 96 hours off. So two days on, four days off. Um, and I mean, they're busy enough that you don't get bored during the 48 hours, but they're not <clears throat> so slammed with calls that, you know, you get worn out because you're busier big city departments. Like, you know, where I worked, I mean, we, at my station, we were knocking out 12 runs every 24 hours, you know, um, sometimes, I mean, on a really, really busy day, we might get 16 or 17 calls. And, uh, <clears throat> I mean, you, it, it would take, you couldn't, there's no way physically you could work 48 hours in that kind of environment. Um, I mean, so sometimes we would with overtime, but I mean, it was, it was, it was rough. I mean, even working at 24, you would need all 48 hours to recover physically, you know, um, from it. So that's, <clears throat> you know, it's uh, you today, you know, firefighters often look at schedules and other departments and they're like, man, I wish we could be on that schedule. Um, because the grass is always green on the other side, you know, but I think I can say with the certainty that no firefighter today would want to go back to what they worked in 1871, the continuous tour, like nobody would want to work that, uh, today. So, <clears throat> um, as I've kind of re mentioned earlier, referenced earlier, the uh, Chicago Fire Department had a very, very large Irish presence at this time. Um, partially because uh, this is pre-civil service. So the way you got a job with the fire department, um, they had very, very few standards uh, other than you had to be a certain age, um, generally physically fit, uh, but that's about it. Um, the way you got these jobs, it was a city appointment. And so you went to your local alderman, your local city councilman, and they would arrange for your appointment to the fire department in exchange for that. You had to pay them something, but they would deduct it from your, your salary until it was paid off. Um, so it was kind of operating on the graph system. Well, if you remember, I said earlier that the Irish were overrepresented in city politics so they could kind of dominate the appointments to the to the fire department and that's kind of how it was in other big cities too i mean it's, it was like that in new york during this time you know um it all actually through much of the 19th century uh new york new orleans philadelphia you know whatever that's kind of how it worked um <clears throat> but a lot of these firefighters in, in chicago in 1871 uh, many of these men were union army veterans so they had <clears throat> seen action um on the battlefields of uh the civil war so these were pretty tough individuals and if you actually look at especially say your irish ones look at what they experienced in their lives i mean most of them would have been born in the early to mid 1840s in ireland which means that they would have experienced the years of the great hunger um, when uh, you know a million people starved to death and died of disease in a country that only had you know eight million seven million people at the time um you know, they, as children, they see bodies lining the sides of the roads. They see, um, <clears throat> children crawling around on their hands and knees, eating grass in the fields like wild animals because their parents are dead and they're left orphaned with no food. Um, they see people dying of typhus, cholera, dysentery. Um, and then they make it to one of the coffin ships that carries them to America where a third of the passengers on them are dying from disease and just being chunked overboard like garbage. Then arriving in the United States in a country that didn't want them at the time. Um, and then when it's 
time for the Civil War to start. Oh, well, you know, yeah, we don't want you here, but we also want you to go and fight for us, you know, so other rich people can stay at home, but you can go fight. So then they also survived the battlefield of Gettysburg, Antietam, Shiloh, you know, Stones River. And now they're firefighters in Chicago. So these are men that have proven their bravery time and time again. Um, and just their sheer will, will to, uh, to survive. So the city and the, and the fire department were slammed with fires during the first week of October of 1871. The city had gotten less than an inch and a half of rain since July, and it was baking in a heat wave. And on top of that, there was a very strong, very steady southwestern wind, uh, which was strong enough that uh, there's, you know, people have talked about it at the time saying it was uh, hard. For, you know, this is a period where men wore hats, and it was hard for men to even keep their hats on their heads. So, I mean, that's a that's not a light breeze. I mean, that's a wind. That's a pretty heavy wind, you know. On a... Uh, September 30th, a Burlington Railroad warehouse caught fire that was storing barrels of liquor and also stacks of dried corn stalks. Uh, the dried corn stalks were used to make brooms. So it did about $600,000 in their money worth of damage and killed one employee. And that kind of started off this, this week of nonstop fires. So over the course of the next seven days, uh, firefighters responded to over 30 fires, including a church, a hotel, a furniture factory, a butcher shop, a freight office, and numerous house and outbuilding fires. And so these beleaguered firefighters were running on fumes by the time the weekend arrived, you know, given how uh, woefully understaffed they were, uh, as it was. Well, what that means when they're that short-staffed is that... Um, companies have to respond to a larger area than uh, they would normally. So I'm just kind of making up the numbers here, but let's say your station protects one square mile, but you're short staffed. So now your station is going to have to protect two square miles, which increases the amount of time that your first due district gets larger. Your second due district gets larger. Your third due district gets larger. So you can kind of see all that the snowball effect. Um, <coughs> <clears throat> Excuse me. Most um, most big city departments deal with staffing shortfalls. I mean, it's just because the city doesn't want to pay to hire enough people. So uh, even though the NFPA mandates four people on an engine company, um, we, we more or less ran with three. The only time you would have a fourth is if it was a probationary firefighter. Uh, so we were always like permanently a man short. Uh, we went through a period of time where we had... Uh, were called brownouts, where uh, a company wouldn't be staffed on a particular shift. So, like, if our sister station's engine was browned out, that meant that we had to respond to our calls and theirs, which increases response times. It's it's greatly detrimental to public safety, but the city politicians don't care. Because if you actually look at it, <clears throat> and you look at which companies get browned out in cities, I'll give you a little hint. It's never <clears throat> the companies that are protecting the wealthy white neighborhoods. Those engines, those companies are always going to be fully staffed. It's the companies protecting the hood, where the calls are frequencies higher anyway. Those companies get browned out. Why? Because the city politicians know that 
you brown out a company in the white in a white neighborhood, the white people are going to be picketing city hall, and and uh, yelling and screaming and everything else. So it's just easier for them to brown out one, and they, of course they don't make a big deal about it. And a lot of times people don't even realize that a company near them has been browned out anyway. So, um, <clears throat> but you know, it's a the cities are real picky and choosy about who they decide to put in danger, and it ain't the wealthy white people that are funneling all the money to the city politicians. Um, so around, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, around 10 p.m. on Saturday, October the 7th, the Lull and Holmes planning mill on South Canal Street between Jackson and Van Buren goes up in flames. It contains stacks of raw pine wood and sawdust. To make it worse, it's right next door to a factory that makes cardboard. And the area around the planning mill had more lumber yards. All told, there was about 7 million feet of dried pine in this neighborhood. Uh, this was a citywide job, you know, required the entire fire department. And it took them about 17 hours to bring it under control. Uh, by that time, it had reduced four square blocks to ashes. Uh, now, again, it takes them about 17 hours to bring this under control. Which means that they've wrapped up this fire just a few hours before the Great Chicago Fire starts. Okay. Now, <clears throat> to make matters worse, about a third of the city's firefighters during this lumberyard fire were overcome by heat or smoke and thus were not available for duty when the big fire breaks out. Um, so the department that had a strength of about 190 when the Great Chicago Fire starts, they're only going to be able to muster about 125 because um, the rest of them are out with injury or heat exhaustion. Also, uh, hook and ladder one and engine three were damaged at the Lowland Homes planting mill fire um, to the extent that the engine, the engine and ladder were inoperable. Uh, so they had to be taken out of service. And the city already had one engine and one hose company out of service for maintenance. So not only are you short-staffed with people, you're now going to be short-staffed with equipment. Um, <clears throat> and those 125 firefighters that are left on a job, they're not in peak condition either because they've just been operating 17 hours at a lumberyard fire. So they're hot, they're tired, they're exhausted, hungry. Their horses are wiped out. Their equipment is all you know soot-covered <clears throat> in need of you know, minor repairs. But the bells are soon going to ring again, and they will once again be called into action. And despite their physical condition, they, they will answer the call. Um, I've only been at one lumberyard fire, and uh, I was on a ladder company at the time, and um, we, we went in on a second alarm. And I remember as we were, we had been listening to it over the radio, so we knew that it, you know, it was just a matter of time before we got dispatched to it. Because lumber yards, I mean, they're going to burn forever, you know. So um, as we're driving to the call, of course, we have rear-facing jump seats, so I'm in the back. I can't see where we're going, you know. So I, I look over my shoulder, and all I see is this massive black column of smoke. I and mean, my first thought was, you know, is this really a lumber yard fire? Did a fucking Russians drop a nuclear warhead on us, you know? And uh, <clears throat> as we're pulling up, I'm hearing a captain this size and, and you hear it over the headset and he goes, 
oh, this is going to be a shit sandwich. And sure enough, it was, you know, and so, of course, my job, we had, we raised a aerial ladder, uh, you know, about a 95 footer and uh, at about a 75 degree angle, uh, I got to stand on the top with the master stream, you know, by myself up in the very top of the master stream, spraying it down onto this fire. Um, of course, the heat and smoke are blowing over me while I'm up there. Um, and, uh, you know, you're up there 95 feet in the air, you know, alone with your thoughts of catastrophic ladder failure, you know, and it just keeps going through my mind that I think this truck was, you know, was provided by the lowest bidder. So, you know, how good is this ladder anyway? You know, uh, actually, the, that the, that truck was about 15 years old. So you know, we got a dicey ladder, but I'm, I'm still here. So I made it. But uh, that, that cured me of any desire to ever see another lumberyard fire. Not that I ever really wanted to see one anyway, but um, so I, I kind of understand how they felt after this one because we operated on that scene about 14 hours. Uh, so before I get into the the uh, the outbreak and kind of the, the discovery of the fire, I'm going to tell you a little bit about the O'Leary family. Because the fire would start in their barn. And we'll talk about, I'll, I'll tell you why, you know, Mrs. O'Leary came to be blamed you know, specifically for the fire. Well, um, Catherine O'Leary had married her husband, Patrick O'Leary, in Ireland um, in the mid-1840s. Shortly, uh, they're both from County Kerry, uh, right before they immigrated to the United States. They first settled in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Um, her husband, Patrick O'Leary, had joined the Army uh, during the Civil War, so he was a Union Army veteran. And at some point afterwards, they made their way to Chicago. Uh, he, uh, Patrick O'Leary worked as a day laborer, uh, learn, earning you know a couple of dollars a day as an unskilled day laborer. Um, they were able to purchase, uh, possibly with his Army pay, they were able to purchase this um, plot on Decoven Street that had, it actually had two cottages, and they would live in one and rent out the other, and uh, a barn on it, um, their little piece of the American dream. They were able to purchase that for about $500. Uh, they, uh, at the time of the fire, Mrs. O'Leary was around 40 years old. Her husband was a couple of years earlier, uh, older, I'm sorry. Um, and you might think, well, wait a second. You said that they got married in the mid-1850s, so that would put her getting married when she was like 15 or 16. Yeah, um, in rural Ireland at the time, that was not uncommon. Um, you know, today that would be a little unusual, but back then it was completely normal. Um, they had, uh, five kids in 1871, um, three boys and two girls, uh, ranging in age from an infant to a 15 year old. And they all lived in their, you know, little cottage. Mrs. O'Leary, despite being illiterate, almost said illiterate, illiterate, ran a very profitable dairy business. That's why they had a barn with a cow to begin with. Um, every morning she would get up right at 4 a.m. She'd go to the barn, milk the cow, hitch up a wagon to the buggy, because they also had uh, and then a couple of horses in the barn too. And uh, she'd load them up in her wagon, and she would deliver fresh milk. Because getting fresh milk in Chicago was actually kind of difficult, and so it was nice when you had somebody in the neighborhood that could deliver it. So she actually made um, enough money that she was able to pay to send two of her, her two oldest kids to Catholic school. So, um, you know, they had a, in some ways, it's almost like, um, they're a, 
it's a true immigrant story and it doesn't matter if it's 1871 or you could change the country they're from and make it in 2021. Here you have people that arrive with nothing and they manage to scrape together enough to buy their little piece of property. And, you know, they're not, they're not wealthy by any stretch of the imagination, aren't even really comfortable by any stretch of the imagination, financially speaking. But they have their little piece of the American dream and they're making it. And that's kind of where the O'Learys were um, as, a, as a family. Um, the, uh, as I said, the fire would originate in their barn. There's really no question about that. So why was Mrs. O'Leary blamed for leaving a lantern in the barn that the cow kicked over? The, during this time period, whenever you had something bad like this happen, there was a tendency in the United States to blame the nearest Irish person that was handy because, again, uh, the Irish are a despised immigrant group during this time period. So you blame them for all of your evils or all the evils of society um, because people would rather just blame immigrants for problems instead of actually you know, trying to fix the problems. Uh, <clears throat> that hasn't changed uh, then or now. So the Irish were often blamed whenever something bad like this happened. Um, even though this is clearly, it was even if, if she had left the lantern in the barn, let's say for the sake of argument that she did and a cow kicked it over, that's still an accident. There's nothing malicious about it. You know, but she would take the blame for it. Um, a newspaper reporter in Chicago at, right after the fire is the one that actually wrote the story that said that, that um, she had left the, the lantern in the barn. Uh, years later, he admitted that he made, all, he made that up. No one ever told him that. He just completely fabricated that story. Yet, you still have people that, that believe it. Um, but Mrs. O'Leary in 1997 was officially exonerated by the city of Chicago for starting a fire. Um, but again, it's just a tendency to blame the nearest Irish person whenever something bad happens. And that wasn't, <clears throat> that's not something that's unique to the United States either. Um, the British have been known to do that and not in ancient, and we're not talking ancient history. Um, you know, they, uh, after a spate of bombings in the UK, uh, the British police rounded up innocent Irish people and beat and tortured them in order to get confessions and uh, then shipped them all off to prison. Very, very long prison sentences. And among those shipped off to prison was a 14-year-old. And uh, whenever they eventually caught the actual bombers for something else that they did, and they told the, the police, you have the wrong people in prison for that, we're the ones that actually did it. Then they attempted to cover it up, cover up the fact that they knew that they had framed innocent people. And they did. The police knew that they were framing innocent people at the time that they were doing it. And then when the Pogues write a song protesting it, it's banned from the airwaves in the UK. And it takes almost 20 years before they finally admit wrongdoing and let the people out of prison. But by that time, some of them had already served their full sentences. One of them had died in prison. The police officers who beat, tortured, and framed innocent people were not ever disciplined. In fact, they were all promoted for it. So uh, we're not talking ancient history. This was going on in the 70s and early 80s. So uh, not a long time ago. Um, so you look up the Birmingham 6, the Guilford 4, and the Maguire 7. So you see it's not an isolated case. It's, kind of, you know, it's, it's not some random thing. It was a 
deliberate thing that the police did. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, again, uh, Mrs. O'Leary bl being blamed for the cow or starting the fire. <clears throat> if Mrs. O'Leary had been living in London in the 1970s, uh, been an Irish immigrant to London, she probably would have found herself being blamed for an IRA bombing, you know, simply because she was Irish. Um, so how, how did the fire actually start? Well, that is, um, that is something that is, uh, difficult to nail down exactly. Um, there's a few different theories and I'll, I'll give them to you, uh, just briefly here. There was a family, um, <clears throat> adjacent to the, uh, O'Leary property, another Irish family. And that night, <clears throat> the night of October the 8th, a relative had just arrived in town from Ireland. And so the family was having, uh, what we Irish call a, a hoolie, you know, they got music and food and all that. And with the smoke and, uh, soot coming up through the chimney and that strong Southwest wind, it is possible that embers from their chimney actually landed either in or on the barn and started the fire. Cause remember how dry everything was. Uh, so that's one theory. And it actually, uh, Miss O'Leary in her deposition that she gave to the city, um, even said that when, uh, she laid down to go to bed that night, I mean, she could hear the music, you know, coming from their house. So that is a, a possibility. Um, the, as a, as an arson investigator, you know, which I spent about half my career as, uh, we always, look at the first person we look at if we suspect arson is the person that started the, that uh started the fire no that make it easy uh, we look at the person that reported the fire because the question that we have is uh and it was this was always the first question i uh i would ever ask when i arrive on a fire scene and i uh i would immediately ask who's the reporting party and the first thing I would ask them before I even asked them their name, I would ask them, how did you come to, to find the fire? Like, how did you know there was a fire? Uh, and 99% of the time, it's a perfectly legitimate answer. It's like, well, I was laying in bed and I heard a smoke detector and I got up and there was smoke. Well, okay. You know, sounds normal to me. But if an individual is somewhere where they are not supposed to be, and they discover a fire, then you're going to have some serious questions for them. Like, well, I had crawled in the window of my neighbor's house and I saw a fire. So I went, you know, like, really? Um, so w when you look back at the great Chicago fire, the, the person who by all accounts, um, saw it first was a guy named Daniel Sullivan who lived uh, across the street from the O'Leary's. He stated that, you know, he saw the fire and then he went and banged on the door of the O'Leary's house to wake them up, you know, to alert them that the barn was on fire. Um, but there is a, um, there was a book that was written that actually goes into a lot of detail examining the depositions taken after the great Chicago fire. And they note, um, dozens of inconsistencies in, uh, Daniel Sullivan's statements, uh, to the police in the aftermath of the fire including the fact that he could not have seen where he said he was when he saw the fire. It was impossible for him to actually see the fire from that spot. 
Um, and that is another thing that as arson investigators, we look at, uh, if I have a witness tell me I was standing here when I saw the fire, I will actually go and take a photograph from that location, uh, to try and match it up with when I go inside the building and do my origin and cause investigation. If the fire is burning out the back of the house, if the fire originated in the back of the house and you say that you were standing in the front of the house and you saw flames coming from the front of the window, when that's impossible because the fire is in the back, you can kind of see. So, um, and that's just one of the inconsistencies. It's also known that Sullivan had pretty much easy access going in and out of the O'Leary's barn uh, because he, he did know them. Um, so it has been theorized that perhaps he had gone in there trying to steal some milk and accidentally um, dropped some uh, pipe or cigar ashes into some hay. Not, not on purpose. And that started the fire. And of course, he's lying to cover the fact that he's the one that started the fire, even though it would have been an accident. Um, there also were people that uh, would sometimes in the neighborhood would go in there, sometimes sneak into the barn uh, at night to shoot craps. And uh, they O'Leary's had to chase him out of the barn a few times. So they could have, again, accidentally started a fire while in there shooting craps. And just when they realized it was burning, they just took off running the left. Um, or it could have been set by either Daniel Sullivan or um, the group that shoots craps. In the case of the, the crap shooters, it'd be to, to get back at the O'Leary's for chasing them out of their barn. Uh, so those are the kind of more common theories. Uh, you also have kind of an interesting theory that was per, uh, first proposed in the uh, 19th century, about 15 years or so after the fire, that it was a meteorite that caused it. And the reason that they that this person theorized that it could have been a meteorite is there's actually several uh, wildfires start in other locations in that kind of general part of the country at the same time, including the deadliest wildfire in U.S. history. And I'll mention those it's kind of in passing at the end of the episode. So remember the meteorite thing. Um, which one do I believe? Uh, personally, I'm convinced that Sullivan started the fire, but not intentionally. Um, I think it was an accident and I do think he was lying to cover for the fact that he started the fire just because he feared that he would be in prison for it again, even though it is an accident because he was also an Irish immigrant. So, um, you know, if he says, well, yeah, I'd gone in there to, to steal some milk and, you know, accidentally started it. He was afraid he'd go to prison. Um, so that's just my, but again, that's my opinion. And, uh, like any arson investigator, I will tell you, I cannot place the origin and cause of a fire that I do not personally investigate. So, um, you know, I, I, I don't really know. Uh, I can read the transcripts from, you know, the depositions, but, uh, that's not the same as me interviewing the individuals myself and getting a, uh, getting a kind of a, my own personal, um, feeling on their level of deceptiveness. So ultimately at the end of the day, we really don't know how the fire started and probably never will know exactly, but we can say that it was not the cow, like in, in almost all probability, it was not the cow kicking over the lantern. Now, on his way home from the big lumber mill fire on the morning of October the 8th, Sunday, Sunday October 8th, Chief Williams uh, told his driver, his carriage driver, uh, he said, you know, I fear that this is not the worst that we've seen. I I'm afraid we're going to have a pretty big burn. 
At the same time, in reporting on the lumber mill fire, so the quote is from the, the Chicago Tribune. It says, for days past, alarm has followed alarm, but the comparatively trifling losses have familiarized us to the peeling of the courthouse bell, and we had forgotten that the absence of rain for three weeks had left everything in so dry and inflammable a condition that a spark might start a fire which would sweep from end to end of the city. Well, as it turns out, that's exactly what would happen later that uh, later that same day, or that night. So, um, around uh, 9 p.m., just after Mrs. O'Leary and her husband have gone to bed, uh, there's a sudden pounding on the door. Uh, Patrick O'Leary gets up, and goes to the door, and he finds Daniel Sullivan uh, yelling that the barn's on fire. Um, Patrick then yells over, yells to wake to his wife to, to wake up. Uh, they immediately see that the fire is already <clears throat> starting to spread, <clears throat> and so they start um, gathering up possessions from their house to to get them away from the fire. Now, at the same time, a blacksmith named William Lee who lived about two blocks, or two, not two blocks, two lots, uh, east, also sees the fire. And he decides he's going to uh, report it via the fire alarm box, the telegraph fire alarm box. Well, there actually is one, like, right around the corner from the O'Leary's house, but he doesn't know that that one's there. So instead, he runs a quarter mile in the other direction uh, <coughs> to... Uh, Fire alarm box 296, which is located at uh, 12th and Canal Street. Um, he goes into a store owned by a guy named Gall, uh, because Gall has the key to the box. He'll go outside and open the box, pull the alarm, and return the key. But for whatever reason, that box was malfunctioning, and the alarm wasn't transmitted. So uh, after that, he, he goes back to watch the fire. Well, about 10 minutes later, another man runs into the store, you know, all out of breath, and tells Gall, the shopkeeper, that <clears throat> the fire is really starting to, to spread. Uh, Gall looks outside and sees it. I mean, he can see it even from that distance away um, <clears throat> because it's <clears throat> getting big. You can see the glow in the sky. <clears throat> and he goes and pulls the box again. But if the second time, no, no alarm is, is transmitted. So the fire is really getting a, a head start. About 30 minutes later, so around 9.30 in the evening, the telegraph operator in the courthouse looks out the window and he can see this red glow in the night sky. But because it's coming from the general direction of the lumberyard fire, and it actually was, uh, the O'Leary's house was about eight blocks uh, southwest of the lumberyards that had burned earlier. He thinks it's just a flare up at the lumberyards and so doesn't really think much of it. And uh, almost simultaneously, the watchman who was up on the in the uh, cupola yells down the speaking tube uh, to the telegraph operator to strike box 342, which was at Canalport Avenue and Halstead Street, which was about a mile away from the uh, O'Leary's property. But remember, he's looking at it from this cupola, so he has to estimate where it is. It's roughly the same line of sight is the O'Leary's house just about a mile distant. So that box is transmitted uh, by telegraph 
to the companies assigned to it, but they're companies that are coming a further away into a different location. The watchman uh, realizes his error and tries to correct it. So he'll um, a few minutes later he'll say, "No, no, no, change that to box 319, which was closer." But the uh, the uh, telegraph operator said, "No, that'll just confuse the responding company. So they'll they'll figure it out." And then in rapid succession, three more fire alarm boxes are pulled in the vicinity of the O'Leary's house. But none of, and all those signals do go into the, uh, are received in the, uh, in the uh, telegraph office, but none of them are transmitted because the assumption is those are all coming from the same fire, which they were. It's just that the original companies were sent further away. That said, um, their uh, fire companies themselves were actually en route. Some of them were already en route to the correct location. Um, on the roof of the quarters of Engine 6, uh, the uh, firefighter that was on house watch uh, seized a fire. Um, he yells down to his uh, fellow firefighters. Uh, Turn out there's a fire on DeCoven Street. So uh, they uh, run down the stairs. This is actually a few years before they installed poles and fire stations, which incidentally also came from the Chicago Fire Department. Um, and uh, they will, um, as they're pulling out of the station, they actually hear <clears throat> the uh, alarm box transmitted for box 342, but they know that's in the wrong direction. So they decide, rather than responding to where they're dispatched, they're going to head they're going to ride to the sound of the guns as it were and go straight for the fire uh, which um, that which they will so they arrive around 9 30 and as they pull up the uh the fire is already starting to spread uh, it's spreading to fences it's spreading to other houses it's not just a barn on fire at this point um one uh one of the firefighters on that on uh, that with that company uh a guy named also named Sullivan, ironically enough, uh, would say that the the facility for burning was very good, meaning the the conditions. The captain of that company, um, a man named Musham, would uh, actually recruit some civilians to uh, deploy an extra hose line. You know, as his men are trying to attack the fire head on, uh, he's also worried it's going to spread that it's going to spread the next street over. So he, he recruits some civilians to deploy a hose in an alley between uh, DeCoven and Taylor streets. Now what's a little unusual about that isn't that he's recruiting civilians to help because the fire department was so understaffed at this time, that was not unusual for them to have to do that. However, per fire department policy, only chief officers could uh, commandeer civilians to help. Here's a captain who actually doesn't have the authority to do that, but he sees that the situation is getting so out of hand that it's uh, he has to. And if he gets in trouble for it, so be it. I mean, that's kind of his, his thought process. Uh, sometimes sometimes violating a policy is the, is the right decision to make. You know? um, in the meantime, Engine 6 is, is uh, quickly reinforced by 
uh, several other companies. Uh, hose Company 2 hits a hydrant about a block north and east of the property. Um, then uh, followed by Hose Company 1, Engine 5, and Engine 2. They all take up uh, positions around the area of the fire. Uh, what they're attempting to do is to gain a perimeter on it because the fire is spreading from building to building. It's got a pretty stiff wind blowing behind it. Um, they know that their best chance of containing it is to set up this perimeter. Uh, the uh, a street would create a natural fire break, um, meaning there's you know you set up your engines in a street and try to stop the fire on one side of the street and keep it from um, getting behind you. So that's essentially what they're uh, attempting to do is create this perimeter with a wall of water, basically, and keep the, uh, keep the fire from moving. But that's not going to work because the, uh, the hot, the dry conditions and the sheer amount of stuff to burn. Um, the, uh, the chief, uh, Chief Williams, arrives on scene at about 945, so about 15 minutes after the first arriving engine companies. Um, when, we, when he gets there, civilians are already tearing down fences, um, trying to deprive the fire of a fuel source. Uh, he immediately strikes a second alarm, uh, followed by a third, which all they had at the time was three alarms, which summoned every available company in the city uh, to that area. And what's kind of eerie is throughout the whole course of the fire, the courthouse bells never stopped ringing. Uh, they rang continuously during the fire until the fire reached the courthouse. Um, there's also, you know, there's growing crowds of people in the streets. Um, there's no real panic yet because the fire hadn't gotten to the point that you realize, oh my God, it's going to burn up the whole fucking city. So people just like to watch. Uh, people are coming out to watch. Um, some of them highly intoxicated. So the companies responding in on the second and third alarms, uh, they're actually having a hard time getting to the fire because the streets are all full of people watching the fire. So one, um, one particular uh, company is actually forced to uh, deploy its hoses on the crowd and spraying them with water to get them to move out of the way. So, I um, mean, so that's how kind of packed the streets are. Um, but having just operated at a fire for 17 hours and now just a, a few hours later getting this other big one. Um, <clears throat> the companies hadn't been able to uh, repair any equipment that might be slightly damaged and re uh, replenish their coal stores for the steam engines. These steam pump fire engines operated on coal. That's how they generated the steam. Um, so engine five um, will have a hose burst uh, their main, uh, their supply line burst. Um, other engines, they run out of coal, and so they're having to actually break up fences uh, to use wood, uh, to burn wood to generate the, the steam pressure. Um, you know, Chief Williams would say once, and this is uh, prior to the fire, he would say that uh, the only way to properly put out a fire was to strike it before it gets ahead of you. Um, meaning catch it when it's small. When a small fire is easier to f put out than a big fire. 
But because of the delayed reporting, they lost that opportunity with, with this fire. Um, what may have been able to be contained um, had gotten out of hand by the time they arrived. Now, of course, fire departments did not have radios uh, in 1871. But if Chief Williams did have a radio in 1871, I'm pretty sure when he arrived on scene, this would have been the orders that he gave over the radio. Well, that's easier said than done because the fire starts creating its own convection worlds, which it's because cooler air and creates, creates an updraft. Um, and it's sometimes it's, it's, it's mistakenly referred to as a, as a fire tornado, um, because that's an easiest way to describe it. Honestly, it looks like a big tornado, a fire in the sky, but it's actually not. It's really a fire world or a convection world. Um, and again, if you want to see what one looks like, uh, just go pull some footage of some of the big wildfires, you know, out, out West. Um, but that's kind of the fire creating its own, its own wind patterns because it's suck. The, the fire is so big. It's sucking in fresh oxygen, you know, at the base, spitting it out, um, as it rises. And that allows it to pick up burning, not just burning embers, but actual burning debris, you know, pieces of wood, et cetera, just like a tornado might and throw it, you know, it's been around and kick it out. Um, so this, uh, growing convection world starts, um, spitting out, uh, burning pieces of fence, burning bits of roof, and it's, uh, throwing them through the air in some cases, you know, blocks away, landing on other buildings and catching them on fire, um, as well. So it's, uh, that's what's going to create such a problem for the firefighters is, is they dig in on the street to try to make their stand. Like we're going to hold the line here. We're going to stop it here. The fire's blowing shit over their heads, landing three blocks behind them and catching more shit on fire. Uh, so that's what makes it so hard for them to actually get the fire contained. Um, around 10 PM, some burning debris lands on the uh, 140 foot wooden steeple of St. Paul's uh, Catholic church at um, Clinton and Mather streets. I think the, uh, the whole steeple goes up almost immediately. Uh, Chief Williams deploys three companies to try and get a handle on it, but the heat is so intense that they can't get close enough to the fire to ad really adequately do anything. And it's at this point that the chief will admit that the fire is getting out of hand, you know, that they're losing, they're losing a, a handle on it. Um, honestly, they probably lost a handle on it before it even, before they even arrived. Um, also remember that this is in a time period in which firefighters didn't really wear, um, protective gear. Um, they had helmets they had nice little leather helmets. Um, but that's pretty much it. They didn't have, uh, you know, the bunker gear that we wear now. They certainly didn't have air packs. Um, <clears throat> so the, they're don't really have any heat barriers. So it's, it's difficult for them to get too close. Um, cause all throughout the course of this fire, there were accounts of the firefighters, you know, hanging in there until their own clothing starts to smolder. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, it's, um, the, the temperature of this 
in the center of this fire tornado is pushing about 2,500 degrees, um, quite a bit hotter than the average house fire, you know, for example. So um, too much more than that, you're getting up to about crematorium heat level. So uh, it, it's hot and you, that heat's radiating off the fire and you can feel it great distance away. Um, much less, you know, you get up close to it, it becomes, you know, almost unbearable. Um, you know, people, because, you know, what you see on the TV doesn't always accurately convey it, but um, when firefighters inside of burning buildings, I mean, we spend a lot of time inside a burning building crawling around on our hands and knees or if it's really hot on our stomachs um, because, you know, you say it's the the smoke that'll, the smoke level is what gets you uh, to your knees, but it's the heat that drives you to your stomach. Um, because even though, yeah, we have the bunker gear, that's actually a, it's not fireproof. Uh, we can still burn under it. And, uh, it, it is kind of a heat barrier, but it still gets pretty fucking hot. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it's just say, put on all that stuff and crawl around in your oven and, and, and see what it's like, but magnify the heat inside the oven by about three, you know, uh, so there it's it, even today, you know, we're kind of susceptible to it. And, you know, there've been times where I've come out of a, of a burn and, you know, took my coat off and I'm smoking underneath it, you know, uh, that's not all that unusual. Um, but it's certainly the case, you know, for them too, they didn't even have, you know, the, the basic kind of protection that, that we have now. Um, there's a one, uh, kind of large business, uh, around the area of the church that catches on fire and, uh, chief Williams deploys two hose lines inside the building to try and, um, contain it. So there, these two hose lines are stretched. They're operating inside this building. The chief will go in to check on them. And when he goes in there, um, the, the, this convection whirl is, is blowing shit into the building. And so they're, they're inside this building getting pelted with stuff being blown in through the busted out windows from the main fire. And it gets to the point that they, uh, they have to just drop their hose lines and, and get out. Um, when they get outside, they ask the chief, um, what should we do now? And his response was God only knows, which, uh, that's, doesn't exactly inspire confidence, you know, um, you know, at, at several, you know, several points throughout this, uh, their attempt up to get a, get a handle on this fire, the firefighters are forced to drop everything and, and, you know, retreat to safety. Um, <clears throat> they're hoping that the four square blocks that it burned earlier in the day will create a natural fire break because that area had already been, the fire had already been deprived of fuel in that area. There was nothing more to burn and it kind of does, but then the, the fire starts to spread to the East instead. Um, <clears throat> by this point, and really we're just a couple of hours really into the fire. The, uh, fire is about three quarters of a mile long covering about 150 acres uh, deep, if you will. So it's, it's, it's going pretty good. I mean, it's burning pretty good. People just assume the river would act as a natural fire break, but they don't realize is there's all these barges tied up along the river with, um, wood on them along with other 
combustible materials. There's a um, a uh, railroad line that runs through the wood, uh, run, runs through wood, runs through the <coughs> runs along the river, where they have um, you know train track or train cars, uh, railroad cars filled with combustible material, uh, all waiting to burn. Um, in fact, <coughs> they include uh, a couple of dozen railroad cars full of kerosene. You know, and so the fire is able to jump the river, uh, much to the dismay of the citizenry, because at this point, the fire is freely burning and it's moving fast. This is when you now have people in the path of the fire loading all their valuables onto carts in the street and trying to outrun it, you know, trying to get away from it. So as you have this mass of humanity, and fire is the great equalizer. And so these are rich people, they're poor people, they're, they're loading their stuff up into carts and trying to get the hell out of the way of the fire. Um, this is when uh, you really have that kind of panic starts, especially when it hits the river and starts to jump the river. Now, one little um, story from the civilian side of the fire that I will mention, because this shit's creepy as fuck, is um, I guess one of the cemeteries in Chicago, they were... Um, excavating the cemetery they actually were digging up the caskets to relocate them to a different cemetery because they were going to build something on the site on the site of the original cemetery so the caskets had already been removed but you still had these graves that were dug out in the ground you know that where the graves were but just with no caskets in them so it's like empty graves so people run into the cemetery thinking that they'll be safe there because there's no vegetation there's no shrubbery anything like that in the cemetery well, the fire starts burning straight towards the cemetery. So to escape the fire, people jump into these excavated graves. They jump into these empty graves. The fire burns over the top of them. And uh, after the fire is out, they'll find freshly dead bodies in graves that had previously held another dead body. You know, they took the casket out. Well, now you find a new fresh dead person in there. So, um, and I don't know if they just covered them up and said, well, that's fine. You can just be buried here or not. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Um, at some point around maybe 11 p.m., a civilian approaches the fire chief with a suggestion. He suggests deploying uh, gunpowder to level buildings ahead of the fire to create a fire break. What this would be doing is no different than, you know, when they were fighting wildfires out west, they'll often set backfires in front of the fire to deprive the fuel, deprive it of fuel in the direction that it's burning. Kind of the same thing here. But it, you, because you got structures, you got to use gunpowder. So um, the chief kind of demurs on it, says, I, I don't know. That doesn't sound like a, you know, I don't really have the authority. I mean, it sounds like a good idea, but I don't have the authority to, to, to order that. Uh, whether or not he really did or didn't have the authority, I don't know. I, my hunch would say he probably didn't, but. Um, he, uh, he tells the guy, if to do that, you're going to have to get permission from, from the mayor. So, um, a few, it actually takes a couple of hours. The mayor will give permission, but then the guy has to find a wagon when everyone's using every available means of conveyance to escape the fire. He's got to find a wagon, get his gunpowder, fight his way back. You know, he's going in the direction that everybody else is running from. So you can see why it take, it's, it's such a long process before they're actually able to, to try doing it. Um, when, uh, when the chief is told 
that the fire has jumped the river, his immediate response is, you know, the firefighter comes up and, or, or actually it's one of the other fire department officers, comes up and tells him the fire's jumped the river. His immediate response is, the hell it has. And then he looks and he's like, oh, shit, you know, it has. Um, around 2 a.m., the fire reaches the uh, the courthouse where the fire department telegraph operator and the uh, the watchmen were. And they had actually been there watching the advancing fire the whole time. You know, I, I'm, I get, you know, staying at your post, but um, they're still in the building when it catches on fire, even though they had more warning than anybody else that it was coming, you know. So they're forced to flee down a burning staircase um, and escape the uh, the courthouse. And around 2 a.m., the, uh, the, the cupola, the bell tower collapses. The bell keeps ringing up until the spot, up until the point that it collapses. And this was a massive, heavy bell, so it hits the ground with a pretty big thud. And that had to have been kind of eerie, if you think about it, because here you have this apocalyptic inferno. And over the sound of the fire, because of fire burning this big, I mean, it, it sounds like a tornado. It creates that kind of sound. You have screaming people and everything, and you can still hear the bell chiming, uh, ringing throughout the whole thing until the until the um, the bell tower itself burns. The mayor will authorize um, the uh, the city to do something that at this time in this time period was a little unprecedented. They send a, a uh, telegraph message out to uh, basically any city that would respond to it. Uh, to those fire departments, telling them Chicago is burning up to the ground. We need whatever help you can send us. So even though it's the middle of the night, you know, two, three o'clock in the morning, uh, fire station doors swing open in Milwaukee, Cincinnati, Pittsburgh, and these firefighters lead their, uh, hook up their horses, and they go to the, uh, to the nearest uh, rail yard. They wake up an engineer. They load their steam engines, their horses, and themselves onto trains, and they head for Chicago. So, um, of course, some of the neighboring communities around Chicago got assistance there first, but help would come from as far away as Pittsburgh. Uh, Pittsburgh sent three engine companies. Uh, Cincinnati sent two engine companies. Milwaukee sent three engine companies, um, all heading into Chicago to try to help contain the fire. Um, you know, today, obviously, mutual aid requests are not unusual, but um, we don't really use trains in the fire service these days, so you're kind of limited to about as far as your engines can drive, you know. But uh, in that days, they actually could get there uh, quicker. You know, if you had to drive a fire truck from Pittsburgh to Chicago, it would take you a hell of a lot longer than loading up your horse-drawn engine onto a train and taking the train. So, um it's kind of it is a little unprecedented in history at this point that they would call for assistance from that far away but um you know fire departments we we help each other out when needed that's just kind of sort of part of the job um you know we'll it's it's not unusual for us to assist other departments uh, sometimes you know if they if they need help if they have something that gets a little bigger uh than uh than what they can they can safely handle um so you have aid from other places also trying to, to come into the city as well to help. Um, the, uh, the fire will, uh, 
continue to burn despite the best efforts of the fire department and also blowing up the buildings is a reason to, uh, to try and prevent it. The mayor will enlist the help of uh, General Phil Sheridan, uh, who had been a Union Army general during the Civil War, who himself is actually the son of Irish immigrants, was a West Point graduate. Now, he knows quite a bit about fire because he and his men burned the Shenandoah Valley during the Civil War. So, you know, fire's kind of right up his alley. Um, and he will also kind of provide some assistance with uh, using the dynamite. And then in the aftermath of the fire, the city will be placed under martial law and put under his control. And he's allowed to deputize people to, you know, help keep order. But um, there really wasn't a lot of... Uh, you know, jackassery in the aftermath of the fire. So the, the need for martial, the, the martial law order was repealed, you know, fairly quickly, um, just cause it wasn't really needed. Um, as more and more time passes, it gets to be increasingly clear that it's going to take a miracle to stop the fire because despite their, their best efforts, they can't get a handle on it. Um, the wind is driving the fire, uh, faster than they have the ability to to uh to put it out um one of the newspapers in the aftermath of the fire uh would talk about specifically about the the firefighters uh, and what they were facing and it would say this and this is a quote from the paper the firemen <clears throat> excuse me the firemen labor like heroes grimy dusty horse soaked with water time after time they charged up to the blazing foe only to be driven back to another position by its increasing fierceness or to abandon as hopeless their task or while, or while hard, uh, hard at work, uh, suddenly the wind would shift. A puff of smoke would come from a building behind them, followed by belching flames, and then they would see that they were far outflanked. There was nothing to be done but gather up their hose, pull helmets down on their heads, and with voice and lash to urge the snorting horses through the flames uh, to a place of safety beyond. So what's happening is they're setting up, and as soon as they get set up, they're dug in, they're ready to try and stop it. It's behind them. It's beside them. It's right behind them. It's three blocks behind them. And so it's set up, fight, pack up, reposition, set up, fight. And this is hour after hour after hour after hour. And again, remember, these are people that are already worn out from their, uh, the previous fire. Um, and it's, it's a helpless feeling to watch something burning out of control knowing that there's nothing you can do, um, that it's just going to have to burn itself out. And ultimately they kind of get to that realization with this fire that it's gotten so big, it's moving so quickly that all you can really do is get out of the way. Um, and fire doesn't care if you're rich or poor, if you're black or white, if you're Republican or Democrat, if you're American or British, if you're in the path of a freely burning, moving fire, the fire don't give a shit who you are. Um, and, and I mean, it just, it doesn't, um, there's no wishing it away. Uh, and if you can't stop it, it's going to get to you eventually. And that's kind of what happens here. Um, even though the fire started in the, the poorer part of the city, um, it does burn towards kind of the central business district where all of the big money in the city is. And ultimately that area is going to be leveled by it too. So it doesn't matter if you're Mrs. O'Leary, I mean, you know, Irish immigrant um, living in a slum neighborhood, or if you're a wealthy, you know, financier in this nice big building, the fire doesn't care. 
and uh, the wealthy are going to be affected by it just like the poor. But the difference is a lot of these wealthy were insured, whereas, of course, the poor weren't. Um, although I don't think that the insurance companies really would have anticipated paying out this large of a loss um, because of a fire. But, you know, um, the uh, eventually, as more and more things burn, the fire is going to slowly start running out of steam. And then finally, overnight into uh, Monday night, early Tuesday morning, about 30 hours into the fire, a uh, rain starts to fall on the city. And after 30 hours, the fire can be officially declared under control. But at, of course, great, great cost. By the time it's over, the fire has destroyed about 2,000 acres, a little over 2,000 acres. It has done a $222 million in damage, and that's in 1871 money. So we're talking uh, just a tad under $5 billion, that's with a B, dollars in, in today money. Uh, a third of the city is left homeless. Uh, there's almost 18,000 buildings destroyed. About a third of the city's population is now homeless. It's said, estimated to have killed 300 people. Um, they only found 120 bodies. The reason why they estimate 300 is because, A, you know that it killed, they, they just know. I mean, they were on the ground at the time. They they saw it, you know, so they would have known uh, how to best calculate that. But <clears throat> the rationale is because of the the heat of the fire itself, some of the bodies would have been reduced to uh, unidentifiable state. Uh, it's also known that people jumped into the uh, they, people jumped into the um, the river to escape the fire. Uh, many of those drowned. The bodies washed away, never to be recovered again. So the 300 is an estimate. Uh, it could have been more than that. Absolutely, could have been more than that. May have been a tad under that, but. That's generally a, a best guess kind of uh, kind of scenario. Um, with uh, with this fire, as I mentioned earlier, this was not really the only big fire that day um, because it's hot and dry all over the Midwest. So, about 250 miles north of uh, Chicago, the uh, town of Peshtigo, Wisconsin, is completely burned up by a fire on the by wildfire on the same day as the Great Chicago Fire, but that fire killed about two thousand people um, and and uh, destroyed about a million and a half acres. It's the uh, deadliest wildfire in U.S. history. But because that region was kind of remote, um, it, it wasn't as well known. Also east of Chicago, across the lake, uh, the town of Holland, Michigan, uh, burned to the ground on uh, the same day as Chicago. Uh, the, uh, there was a lumbering town um, called uh, Manistee, also burned that day, and that was kind of known as the Great Michigan Fire. Uh, along Lake Huron, the, uh, and, and Port Huron, Michigan, you have another a fire there on October the 9th. So by the second day of the Great Chicago Fire, um, Port Huron burns up in a fire. 
You also have a fire on October 9th in Urbana, Illinois, a, a large fire in Urbana, uh, Urbana, Illinois, which is uh, 140, 150 miles you know, south of Chicago. And October 12th, you have um, Windsor, Ontario, and Canada has a ma- massive fire on October the 12th. So the, the Great Chicago Fire wasn't the only big fire in the country uh, or in the area uh, on that day. The reason why the the Great Chicago Fire is known, and a lot of, you know, most people have heard of it at least, whereas, say, the Pestigo Wildfire isn't, is just because when you have a fire that burns up a major urban center, that's what people are going to know about. That's what people are going to, especially back then, that's what's going to get all the news coverage. Pestigo, Wisconsin was in a remote area, and um, so it's not going to get the same coverage, even though it was it was far deadlier. Um, and that's just kind of the way it is. Uh, it's kind of like, um, you know, during, uh, well, in, in 2005, um, a lot of the coverage with uh, Hurricane Katrina was focused on New Orleans, um, not so much of it fo- focused on, you know, coastal Mississippi. Why? Just because New Orleans is a major urban area. And then later, when, uh, you know, a few weeks later, when Hurricane Rita uh, devastated Cameron Parish, Louisiana, and Jefferson and Orange Counties in Texas, uh, once the once they realized that this, you know, once the media realized that the storm wasn't going to hit Houston, it's like it didn't matter anymore. And so the people affected by Rita um, were forgotten because uh, the news was still covering what was going on in New Orleans post Katrina. So. And it's just because of population. The larger the population that's affected by something, the more news coverage there's going to be. That's just, that's, it's unfortunate, but it is what it is. I mean, today or back then, uh, it's really no different. Um, so that's why Chicago would get all of the, would get all of the, the press coverage. Now, the Great Chicago Fire has entered kind of popular culture, you know, American memory, if you will. Uh, there was a somewhat inaccurate but halfway decent movie called in old Chicago that came out in the thirties where the fire is kind of the, the, uh, climactic point in a movie. Um, but there's a lot of inaccuracies with it, with the movie itself, but it's not a bad, not a bad watch. Um, the, uh, Chicago, uh, professional soccer team is known as the Chicago fire. Again, a reference to this, which uh, I'm all about kind of historical connection and sports team names. So that one's, that one's actually a good one. Um, of course, there is the Mrs. O'Leary song that children know, the, the parody to, to Hot Time in the Old Town Tonight. Um, and there, oddly enough, there really hasn't been like tons and tons of books written about the Great Chicago Fire. Uh, but there are a few. Um, I'll mention one in particular here and because it's, it's actually a work of fiction. And it's called Chicago 1871. So in the interest of full disclosure, the, the author is a friend of mine. Um, is a, he's a retired uh, fire department officer from California. Um, in his novel, it's got an interesting kind of twist on it. It's a modern day firefighter gets inadvertently sent back in time to Chicago in 1871. And I think he does what any firefighter would do if they went back in time. They join the fire department. So it's... Uh, fighting the great Chicago fire, but seen through the eyes of a modern day firefighter who's gone back in time. So if you like, you know, time slip fiction, you know, it's, it's a pretty good book. It actually won some, some, uh, major awards and shit. So, I mean, it, it is, it is really good. And I'll put a link in the, in the show notes for you. 
uh, if you're interested. But, you know, it's something that might appeal to, uh, say, maybe kind of compare it a little bit to like uh, Outlander. Uh, the Outlander books are in TV series. My only difference is, you know, an Outlander series, um, I don't know what it is, but it's like they're, they're having sex every five minutes. You know, it's like they can't, they can't ride 10 feet through the countryside without, you know, they fall to fucking, but, and, uh, the Chicago fire book, there's not a lot of graphic sex in it. So, uh, you know, it's probably tamer for children, if you will. Um, cause I, you know, I'll be honest. I, I, you know, personally, um, I like horses, you know, and if I could, you know, the history professor part of me knows that the past was not a good place. You know, um, I know that, but if I had the opportunity to travel back in time to say the 1890s, turn of the 20th century, maybe, and spend a month working as a fireman in a city, you know, in the horse drawn era, uh, I would absolutely 100% jump at the opportunity to do it. And even, and I would be going into it with my eyes wide open because again, I am a history professor. I know what the past was like, but I would still willingly do it just to get the chance to work uh, like they did uh, for a month. And, you know, in, in the interest of, of full disclosure, I kind of have a bit of a, a bit of a thing for women from the late Victorian and, and Edwardian eras. So, you know, I have a few history crushes from that time period. So maybe if I went back in time, I could meet one of my history crushes. And then who knows, we might even end up getting married and I would just stay in the past. Now, I know you're saying, well, wait a second, aren't you already married? Well, we have to think about this now. You know, my wife was born in the 70s. I'm not going to tell you which year because she fucking killed me, but she was born in the 70s. So if I traveled back in time to say 1900, then my wife would not actually have been born yet. So if I travel back in time to 1900, my wife hasn't been born yet, then I can marry someone in 1900 and it wouldn't be cheating because my wife had not been, wasn't born. So, I mean, look at, look at what, uh, what, what, what's her name did in Outlander. I mean, she's married, but then she goes back in time and marries somebody else and nobody has a problem with that. So, um, I think, uh, you know, you know, you know, this might work. So if, if ever anybody invents a time machine, hit, hit me up. Cause, um, I definitely will, will try it out. I'll even be your Guinea pig for you cause it might work, you know? So, um, so I definitely would. So I, the, the, this novel, Chicago, 1871, it kind of appeals to me a little bit for that reason, just cause it is kind of a neat um, how this modern day firefighter has to adapt to their, their way of doing things, which, uh, we're not all that different, believe it or not. Uh, the job itself, um, the basics of the job itself haven't changed all that much. Um, we still do the same types of things. Most of our traditions today were the same as they were in 1871. So we would, one of us would feel comfortable. Um, a firefighter today would be kind of comfortable in that environment in 1871. Um, unless of course they were, uh, African American because then they wouldn't be allowed in the department in 1871. So, uh, and in fact, uh, the, the Chicago fire department would hire African American firefighters, uh, as a response to the great Chicago fire as a way to, um, shore up their manpower. Um, you know, at the time, you know, firefighting was not a job that a lot of people aspired to because the pay wasn't very good. The working conditions were bad. I mean, as I talked about the continuous tour and whatnot, so you had a hard time really getting people that wanted to do it. Um, so to help <clears throat> deal with manpower issues, uh, in 1872, Chicago would create its first, um, all 
African-American engine company, Engine 21. Well, they had a white officer, of course. It was a captain. Um, and it was that engine company, Engine Company 21, that seven years after the Great Fire uh, in 1878 would install the very first fire pole in the United States. Uh, it was the, the pole they installed was wood uh, coated with paraffin to make it slick, which is kind of funny because paraffin is like napalm when it catches on fire. But um, two years after that, on the East Coast, you'd have the first metal fire pole installed. But uh, the actual first real pole was put in by this all-African-American engine company in uh, in Chicago. And that company was founded in response to the uh, the Great Chicago Fire. So as a firefighter myself, you know, my, uh, I've said this before, but to me, the, the best part of the job was the pole. I mean, that was, you know, I feel bad for, for people to work in stations that didn't have them, you know, one-story stations. But that was always my favorite part of the job. Now, there's another kind of a postscript to the Great Chicago Fire. Uh, one uh, one of the very young firefighters who fought this fire in 1871 named James Horan would go on later to become uh, the chief of the department. I mean, he would stay in, you know, for a very long career. And he would be, um, he along with 20 other Chicago firefighters would be killed on uh, December 22nd, 1910 at a fire at the Union Stockyards. Uh, during the course of this fire, you had a, a, one of the big warehouses collapsed, uh, killing the chief and uh, 20, uh, 20 other firefighters. And at that time, 1910, it was the deadliest um, building collapse, killing you know, for firefighters uh, since, and, and, and remained that way all the way up until uh, September 11th. So here's someone who was a young man who had survived fighting the Great Chicago Fire, only to die is chief of the department and and another fire what 39 years later 40 years later i can't yeah about almost almost 40 years later so um <clears throat> with uh with the 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 men that fought the great chicago fire you know i think that um they would have told you you know if you talk to them in the aftermath um obviously they they did their best uh just because of conditions that really weren't theirs, weren't their fault, uh, the, the fire just got away from them. But um, they would all tell you that there was nothing uh, heroic about their actions. They were just doing their job. And that's the same thing that, you know, firefighters would tell you today. Um, the, the only type of firefighter today that will go around calling themselves a hero or boasting about uh, their heroic deeds it, that's going to be some 19 year old kid that's a volunteer fireman at bumfuck vfd that wears a i fight what you fear t-shirt you know any any real firefighter will tell you very quickly that you know it's a job there's nothing heroic about it it's you know you, you do what you have to do you know uh, i think uh, a fictional firefighter said it best uh Tommy Gavin on Rescue Me when he said I ain't no hero I'm a fireman and I actually had that a sticker that said that on the side of my helmet because uh, that's kind of the way I viewed the job as well so um, I'll leave you with one last little postscript uh, to the great Chicago fire and this one touches on a religious thing so if you know that will bother you just go ahead and stop the podcast here but uh, there's a very famous hymn um that uh, ties back into the Great Chicago Fire, and that's how I'll wrap up the uh, the episode. Um, 
Now, you know, I, as I've said, I, I grew up, you know, I'm Irish, I grew up Catholic. Um, if you go back and listen to uh, one of the earlier episodes called Angels Among Us, you can learn in that by, of the incident that happened to me that led me to uh, leave the Catholic Church and join the uh, Russian Orthodox Church. Um, but either one of those, Catholic or Russian Orthodox, uh, we don't, you know, gospel songs aren't really our thing. You know, we don't really do those kind of things. But having grown up in the South, I grew up hearing gospel songs, obviously. And uh, this is one that I always liked, though I never, uh, I never really, it never really truly resonated with me until after, um, until the aftermath of my own uh, career-ending injuries. Uh, but the story behind this song is you had a you had a um, you had an attorney in Chicago. Uh, his name was Spafford, I believe, and he had heavily invested in property that was in the area of uh, the burned in the Great Chicago Fire. Well, uh, shortly before the fire, uh, I've got to back up so a little bit. So shortly before the fire, his four-year-old son died. Well, then you have the Great Chicago Fire, and he's invested heavily in real estate in the area that was burned, and so he loses almost all of his money. Two years after that, 1873, the country had a pretty serious uh, depression, uh, economic depression, and so he loses the rest of his money there. <clears throat> He's an elder in the Presbyterian Church, and so he decides that um, th they're going to go to Europe as part of like a... Um, evangelistic crusade kind of thing. So he books passage on a ship um, that was um, bound for uh, France with uh, for himself, his wife, and his four daughters. Well, at the last minute, uh, some business dealings keep him in Chicago, so he sends his wife and his four daughters uh, on ahead of him. Well, the ship that they're traveling on <coughs> collides with another ship and sinks. Um, and his wife is uh, picked up by a passing ship. She's found unconscious uh, floating on a piece of wood. So she's rescued. Um, the ship that picks her up takes her to Cardiff in Wales. And when she arrives, she sends him a, uh, sends, sends her husband a telegram, which very famously said, saved alone. And that's his, uh, that's how he learned that his four daughters, his only remaining children, had died uh, in the shipwreck. So he immediately books passage on a ship to um, to travel to, uh, to to meet up with her in Wales. And as uh, the ship's going across the Atlantic, it actually passes the site where the spot where the um, his wife's ship had, had sank. And it's in passing that spot that he's inspired to write the words to this uh, this particular hymn. Now, <clears throat> I'll I will say that um, I'm one of those people that I've always been, um, I'm more of the quietly religious type. Um, I think that religion is a personal matter. Um, I always look kind of uh, sideways at someone that, that has to go around bragging about how Christian they are. Because to me, if you're really following the teachings of uh, Jesus, you wouldn't need to tell people that. It would just be obvious. you know. Um, and I believe it was Jesus that said, you know, when you pray, do not be like the Pharisees who stand on the street corner so that all may hear them. Verily I say unto thee, they have had their reward. So in other words, your religion is private. 
you know it's it's you don't put it on display for the world to see um as that's what always bothers me about some classes certain classes of politicians that they want to go around telling everyone how religious they are well they're probably not that's why they're having to tell people that um and then religious people actually fall for that bullshit too so um you know so that's just kind of you know my view but i think the best quote on religion comes from detective uh cole in the series uh season one a true detective when he says um when he says uh if the only thing keeping a person decent is the expectation of a divine reward, then brother, that person is a piece of shit. Um, so in other words, you should do good things because it's the right thing to do, not because you expect some kind of reward for it. Um, but anyway, this, as I said, this, um, particular song came to really kind of, um, and, and not for religious reasons really, but you know, uh, after I got hurt, um, and had to retire, I spent a couple of years in a, a pretty deep, uh, depression um you know i i deal with even to this day i deal with the physical after effects of that uh, it's a never-ending cycle of complications surgeries more complications more surgeries you know i'm looking at another surgery now in less than two months um i mean that's just it's just this never-ending cycle i uh i've you know i live with uh constant you know chronic pain like i don't remember what it's like to not be in pain every second of every day um i don't i don't know i don't know what that feels like anymore um on a good day you know my pain level is a five out of ten and i don't have many good days you know um but i keep going because i have to i mean i don't really have any other option but I remember um, when I was kind of at the height of that deep depression that came after, you know, what happened to me. Um, <clears throat> I it, it pulled up YouTube on uh, on uh, my uh, TV, and for whatever reason, this this hymn was in the suggested viewing, and so I uh, I, I, I don't know why, but I, I decided to watch it. And it's really the first verse that resonates with me. And, and um, I think it, it's one of those things that doesn't matter if you're religious or not. What that first verse of the hymn really just deals with acceptance. And, you know, just that helped me come to accept the fact that, yeah, I mean, this bad thing happened to me. And, you know, my, my life expectancy has been reduced by about 20 years. You know, I I deal with all these health issues. um both physical and mental health issues. I mean, that's, but, you know, but, um, I can either sit here every day, miserable questioning why that stuff had to happen, or I can find a different avenue and different things to do, um, which is the route that I ended up going. Uh, not that it was easy and not that it is easy cause it's not, but you know, it, it the song itself kind of helped me accept what happened and just realize that bad things are going to happen and we can't change them. You know, so the uh, <clears throat> the the title of the hymn, the actual name of the hymn, is called um, "It Is Well." Or sometimes you'll hear it, uh, hear the title uh, as uh, "It Is Well with My Soul." But regardless, that's the name of it. So the uh, the first verse, <clears throat> excuse me, the first verse goes like like this here: When peace like a river attendeth my way. 
When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. So until next time, friends, take care of yourselves and each other. And now I'm going to let uh, let Hot Time in the Old Town tonight play us out here.